Let's pray. God, we have uh, looked at how you um, have fought for us, have, um, well, you didn't really have to fight because Jesus, all victory and all authority and power is in you. And you rescued us and you saved us. And today, Lord, we want to look at a passage of scripture in Colossians that really gives us insight into how the Apostle Paul struggled and suffered and served and what that meant for him. And I just pray, God, as we have sung these songs and we've declared that this is what we're willing to do because of what you've done for us, I pray that today's passage and this just reading today would help us to understand and what that means for us. So I pray now that you would give us ears to listen, hearts to consume, um, minds that would just turn off all the noise, and would we, we would allow ourselves now to just be immersed in your word and to hear what it says. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started the book of Colossians, and we did that by saying, I, we will try hard in this series to not preach application. <laughs> and I can tell you, this has been a thorn in my side now that I've told you this, because um, I am uh, spending significant time in my uh, sermon prep going, uh, that sounds like application, so I should pull that back. And so today, again, I might be right on the line sometimes of preaching application. But the reason for this is simple. I am convinced that we as Christians sometimes struggle to truly listen. And we read the Bible and we read it fast and we spend more time thinking about what we should do with it than we do listening to what it says. And so I'm hoping that as we go through the series that it will not just be a different way of approaching a passage of Scripture, but that it might also become a tool and a way for us to learn to do Scripture reading in our own lives. Uh, to read quietly, <clears throat> to read reflectively, to read listening to what the passage is saying to us. And so I want to share with you a little bit today um, about what, this, um, what the occasion is. Why is this letter being written or what, what is happening in the church in Colossae? And, and you also have you know, connection to Laodicea. And, and what is happening in this place? And so if you read through the entire letter, one of the things that you're going to see very quickly is that Paul is writing because he's been prompted by a special heresy that is starting to take root in, in, in the, the city of Colossae and in that church. The false teaching seems to be the beginning of a second century heresy called Gnosticism. And I want to just share with you a little bit about what Gnosticism is. And, and, and you need to know this because once you see what it is, you begin to make the connections in the letter. And, and you can see how Paul is gently and at times very firmly addressing this, this, uh, this belief, this heresy. Gnosticism contains several different characteristics. It was Jewish, stressing the need for Old Testament laws and ceremonies, the, the observation or the observing of the old laws and um, ceremonies. It was also philosophical, laying out emphasis on special or deeper knowledge, very much about knowledge and how much, how much you knew. Number three, it involved a worship of angels as mediators to God. 
And, and so this was something, and if you look at the, the region, there was a lot of angel worship, and so again, something to be aware of. It was exclusive, um, stressing the special privilege and perfection of those who belong to this philosophical elite. Uh, and then also it was Christological. So it had some elements of, of, of uh, Christ, and yet it was false. It had a wrong understanding. It did not believe, it denied the deity of Jesus. Because part of Gnosticism is this idea that anything, any kind of matter is evil. And so the idea that Jesus was fully God and fully man was impossible in the eyes of, any, of a Gnostic. And so this is why Paul gives one of the greatest declaration of Christ's deity found anywhere in Scripture. And we looked at that last week in chapter, two, uh, chapter 1, 15 to 20, the Christ hymn. So clearly you can see how Gnosticism, this heresy, has to be addressed. Paul has to address this. It's the beginning stages of a second century heresy, but Paul needs to address this before it takes too much root within the church. So Paul is not writing to a church that is free of challenge. If you look at the entire book, one thing that's pretty clear is that the church is doing really well, that the, the, you know, the people are following Christ. And so the reality, though, is that it's not completely free of any kind of issue. There are some undercurrents, and Paul needs to address them. And so Paul is not writing to a church that is free of challenges. He is writing to a church that is on the same you know, is not on the same page in everything. And so there's a danger here for the people that belong to the church of being misled. And at the same time, the people desire to serve Jesus. So there's this tremendous desire to serve Jesus, and then there's the danger of latching on to anything that is appealing to them. And so Paul, you will see, continuously speaking about the true gospel, or the gospel we present, meaning he, um, the gospel that is accurate, not what someone else is teaching. And so like us here today, my guess is that for many of us, we desire to serve Jesus. We desire to, we desire to live a lives that are in line with Christ. We desire to be passionate about Jesus, to, to do for Jesus, to be active in our obedience to Christ. And so it's important for us then to recognize that this letter is very relevant to us because we too, if we're not careful, can buy into false teaching. So Paul is speaking to them and he's introduced himself and he's and in, in the chapter one we're going to look at and he begins to describe his labor for them. And so in today's passage, Paul outlines how he is suffering, how he is suffering for them as a servant of Christ. This is a man who has experienced extreme persecution for being a Jesus follower. So as we listen to the text today, I want you to take special note and listen especially to Paul's attitude towards persecution. He ended last week, we looked at the passage last week, we ended with Paul saying that he had become a servant of this gospel. So let's take a posture now again of listening, and I will do my best to read it well for us. And I trust that the Holy Spirit would speak to us through this passage. So last week, like last week, I don't want you to start thinking right away, well, what does this mean? What am I supposed to do with this? How, you know, don't try to figure out all the details. We're going to go through it slowly. 
But I want you to listen carefully, especially to how Paul describes his relationship with Jesus, his attitude towards the church, and so on. And so if you have your Bibles with you, um, like last week, I want you to have them open on your lap. And if you have your phones, uh, you can go to our church app, and if you click sermons and follow the path, you'll see notes, and you can follow along that way. Or whatever you do, uh, just try not to hit the, uh, the audio book so that uh, you know, it starts reading it with me. But uh, anyway, uh, we'll be okay. Um, and so let's follow along. But I would love for you to have your Bibles open. We're going to read through it once, and we're going to go back and slowly walk through it. And I would love for your eyes to be down on Scripture as we read together. So let's start. Um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, and all the way to verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Let's read together. Paul speaking. He says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. For the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentile the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Verse chapter 2. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and unity in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is in Christ. So like last week, I mentioned this last week to you, I would love now to just break and have a chance for you to respond and, and, and share as we read through this. What were some things that you heard and here's, a, here's just a maybe if you're like, well, how, how exactly, what am I exactly supposed to listen for? Let me just give you some things to think about. What is a word or phrase that jumped out at you? So even as you're maybe doing your own Bible reading from time to time, uh, that's a really good question. What was something that just sort of popped out at you, jumped out at you? But with this text, what was an attitude that you, that you heard Paul have about being a servant of Christ? Did you catch the line about not being this not being in his own strength. From this passage, what would you say Paul's, art, uh, Paul's attitude is towards the people in the church? And we can take time now and just listen again and go through it and read it again with these questions sort of in their, our back, back of our minds as we listen. But I want to take a few minutes now and we're just going to go right back to chapter 1, verse 24. And I want to walk us through this passage, doing my best not to give application 
but listening to what is the passage saying because there are some things in this passage that are very easy to understand and then there are some things that are very complicated. And so let's go back to chapter 1, verse 24. And again, I'd love for you to have your Bibles open. But here Paul introduces the topic of laboring or struggling for the church by using a word that we may not usually expect someone to use when they talk about suffering for the church. Did anybody catch what that word was? What was the word that Paul starts off with and says, this is how I view myself when I think of struggling for the church. Rejoice. What a strange word. It's not one that we would often think of when we think of suffering for, um, for Jesus or for the church. He says, now I rejoice that I am suffering for you. And then he adds this, and I don't know if you've, you caught this. I'm sure you did, but let's just look at it. A little section that is extremely controversial and very, very difficult to understand. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. And so here Paul introduces a complicated and debated topic. Paul is expressing his willingness to suffer for the sake of the church, but in what he says, Many people have really, really wondered, what does he mean? What is this about still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction? Is he saying that what Jesus did isn't enough? So I want you to understand that what he's referring to here, this affliction, this, this suffering that he's talking about, there's a term for it. It's called the birth pangs of the Messiah. These are the pains, the woes which occur before the arrival of God's anointed ruler. And in the Old Testament, you see this often. If you go to the, especially the book of Judges and some of the kings, and, and, and even when the people of Israel are in Egypt, the people are waiting and waiting. In the book of Judges, you know, so then God sends Gideon, and the people finally have a ruler, and their suffering comes to an end, and then Gideon passes away, and then the people go back into a season of suffering and, and hurting and struggling, and then God sends another ruler, and that's what this is referring to. So in the New Testament, this means this occurs between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is in heaven, and before he returns, his members in the church suffer. Least of these, of course, is Paul himself. Now this affliction, this suffering, is limited by God, and all Christians do take part in the suffering, which is essential for us to be glorified in Christ when he returns. This verse emphasizes Paul's suffering. He is writing while he is in Rome in, on house arrest, and yet he still rejoices, even in this hardship. And so this is important for us to see because once we understand what he means here, then it's easy to understand why he is rejoicing. So Paul could consider, Paul could rejoice in the suffering because he knew that the end was in sight, that glory was coming, and that this glory is in God. So Paul suffered both for Christ and on behalf of the church. And the way that Paul refers to Christ's affliction or his suffering here has been the subject of much controversy. So while there are many different views, where I would land is this, that most likely what Paul, Paul is speaking to here in regards to suffering is his suffering is a service while Christ's suffering was a sacrifice. 
And so he would not for one second consider himself that what he is suffering is the same as what Jesus suffered. So while Christ certainly suffers when his church suffers, Paul's experiences are of a different kind of suffering, meant for a very different purpose than the sacrificial death of Jesus. In other words, Paul is not suggesting that his suffering makes up something that is still lacking in the saving power of Christ and Christ's death. Rather, he considers his persecution a service, one which Christ left for his followers to fulfill. This is complicated, and much could be said about this, but when we understand this, that Paul is saying that my suffering for the church is an act of service which Christ left for us to do, it makes sense that he would now suddenly say, and so therefore I can rejoice in what I am doing. Why? Because I am fulfilling what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus says very clearly, in this world you will have trouble. And Paul is speaking here now that he is willing to suffer for Christ so that what Christ has left for us to do um, and while we wait for him can be accomplished. So suffering for Paul has a purpose. He is not, it is not something, or he doesn't see it as something simply to endure or to fight against, but he sees it as a service for Christ and also with Christ, and that's why he can rejoice. So there you go. You can see now how I could just pause right here, and we could now, the rest of the time, which I'm taking way too much time with this, um, we could now just talk about application. So this is one of those passages difficult to understand, but it's important for us to hear what Paul is saying. Paul presents God's word by explaining God's plan. Paul sees himself as a servant by the commission of, that God gave him. So his suffering is not for himself. It's not his agenda, but rather to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And this theme comes up over and over. This suggests bringing God's word to completion. And again, this can be a little complicated. But Paul is saying here that Jesus instructed the church to go into the world. And so part of this is that we present the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus, and also that we take it into the world. He is not sharing just any gospel. He is sharing God's mystery. And this mystery, he says, has been kept hidden for ages and generations. But now, after the decisive action of Jesus on the cross, the mystery is no longer hidden, but disclosed to the Lord's people. Now, you may be wondering, well, what is this mystery? You know, um, what, what does this mean for me? So the first thing we need to understand as we look at this is we need to hear how Paul describes this mystery. He says, to them, the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of the mystery, of this mystery. So glorious riches indicates that the mystery is magnificent in every way. It partakes in God's own character, and in this mystery, God has showered his blessings upon his people, especially the Gentiles. So what is the mystery? The answer, simply, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see this in verse 27. A gospel that was first presented to them by Ephesus, which they accepted, which was the idea that Jesus was their Lord and their Savior, this lives and dwells in them. 
this hope that they now have, as members of his body, they now have life in Christ completely. And for this, Paul is willing to suffer, to present God's word to them and in fullness. He doesn't want them just to hear certain parts of it. He wants them to embrace the fullness of who Jesus is, the hope of glory. He wants them to understand that the true gospel that they have so that they do not embrace a false teaching and so that they would experience, truly experience the hope that is in Christ. So that's the first thing that, for which Paul is willing to suffer. The second is to proclaim Christ to each person. And you see this, this is sort of at the heart of Paul's suffering. He wants to make known Jesus known and he wants this mystery uh, that is dwelling in believers to be known for all people or to all people. He says, he, Christ, is the one we proclaim. Now the word proclaim, if you ever read it, especially in the New Testament, almost always refers to the gospel or there's a connection to the gospel. The good news of Jesus. Proclaiming is this preaching, this declaring the gospel. But Paul is doing more than just proclaiming the gospel. Look at what it says. He says we are also admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. His preaching or his proclaiming of the gospel is not superficial. He desires to see a complete change in the life of the people in the church. Not just some superficial or, or uh, you know, external change, but an inner full change. This is for everyone. No one is left behind. This is something he wants all people to experience. This teaching, and even this kind of teaching, is for the entire church, for everyone. So I want us to hear what Paul is saying here. He says, he's basically saying to us as a church, and to the church at that time, our mission in the, as a church is not finished just by proclaiming the gospel. Meaning that we do not want to only see people convert to Jesus. The goal of the church is to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Or as Paul would say, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And again, this is why Paul is suffering and what he continues to work towards. He wants to see people fully mature in Christ. However, and I think this is important for us to see and to hear in this passage, Paul is very clear that this is not on his own strength. And I think we need to hear this today. I think sometimes we think about like leading people and we get frustrated and people are, you know, sort of just this living this shallow Christian life. And Paul's like, this is not of my own strength. He says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul gladly acknowledges that the strength for this or the effort for this does not come from himself. It comes from God. And now let's jump into chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we see a shift. While Paul is still working hard for the church, he, wants, he now wants to make a clear effort for them to not buy into um, wrong teaching. So the third reason he is willing to suffer is to protect God's people from false teachers. At the beginning, we looked at the heresy, this Gnosticism that's starting to take root. And so Paul is now making a very personal appeal here to the church. He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally 
So he started with the very general terms, and he's speaking sort of, you know, just generally to everyone, but now he's addressing them very specifically. Many had never met Paul, and yet he is still contending. He is still struggling for them. And he's struggling for them in this area by protecting them, and he looks at it in three different ways. First is the idea of promoting or uh, yeah, promoting unity. He says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Paul sees the importance of the unity within the congregation. See, when the church is divided, Satan wins. And Paul sees that. And so he, he is now striving for there to be unity within the church. Paul is not suggesting here that they agree on everything, but that they would be united in heart, that they would be united in love, meaning that their motives, that their feelings, their affliction or, or affection would be united. There is a big difference between disagreeing with someone on a topic and disagreeing with the person. You can disagree with someone on a topic, but still respect the person. And what Paul is speaking to here is do not disagree with one another. Fine, you don't see eye to eye on every topic, but you are all in Christ. And so we cannot have disunity among each other as individuals. And this unity is for the sake of Christ. And this leads us to the second um, way that Paul wants to protect them from false teaching, which is keeping Christ at the center. Chapter 2 Verse 2, in the last part of 2, he says, So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Paul's uh, statement here is very clear. that Christ must remain the center of the church. Christ must be what the church is about. Christ is the head of the church, and therefore any belief that would remove Christ from being the head must be rebuked. If Christ is the head, and when the church is united in Christ under, you know, under his lordship, Paul outlines what will happen. And I th here again, I want us to listen carefully because I think we sometimes get this wrong. He says in these verses, he, we, 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 we hear that he is building one thought on top of another. So he starts with wanting them to have the full riches of complete understanding. This is part of the unity. When they have this, then they may know the mystery of God, which is Christ. And when they know this mystery, they will see or become aware of the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when they become aware of this, then they will be able to you know, understand and prevent themselves from um, fine-sounding arguments because they will have this um, knowledge, this understanding. And I think, folks, for us today, we need to recognize that we also must work in this, this way. That we must start with unity in the church. And see, here I'm going now into application. But this is just what it is. Paul wants the church to recognize the importance of unity so what did we hear him say in verse 2? What is he struggling for? What is his goal? His goal is for the church to be united in heart, which will result in them experience complete understanding, knowing the mystery of God, which will help them unpack 
the wisdom and knowledge of God, which would prevent them from being deceived. And so this is, I think, the way that Paul would build his case. This is how you prevent embracing false teaching. It starts with unity. And it starts with knowing Christ. It starts with understanding and being united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I sadly believe that very often today, the church reverses this. We focus more on what we disagree on. We focus more on combating certain teachings and things like that. But we are not doing it united under the umbrella of Christ. We, re, we rather unite under ideas. And what Paul is saying here is first and foremost, unite in heart and love under the umbrella of who Jesus is. And then thirdly, the reason he is um, working towards or the way that he wants to, to keep the church from falling into false teachers is to stay spiritually connected. He says, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight in how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is. Paul, he is very clear. No, I'm not there with you physically. And what I am writing, I would say to you if I was there. There's no difference between what I'm saying on paper and there's no, than what I would say to you in person. So while he's not physically there, he says, I'm with you in spirit. So he wants the church to understand that there is a connection to him. And if there's a connection to him, and if Paul is teaching the gospel, and if Paul is an apostle of Jesus, then they need to recognize that by staying connected to him and believing what he is teaching, that it is the true gospel, it is what Jesus, would have, it is what Jesus has taught, then this will help them and this will uh, cause them to uh, not fall on into false teaching. So church, I recognize that today we just hammered through this and I'm looking at some of your faces going like, oh my goodness, like, that was like a, a lot all in one shot. But I hope that as you're listening to this, you hear the importance of what Paul is saying. That we must stay united. That we must be united and we must recognize and first and foremost who Jesus is in our lives. That we do not just chase after things that, are, that sound good or that, that, that fit culturally or whatever it might be. The gospel must be what we totally uh, hold on to. And Jesus must be the one that we must come under and, and allow to lead us. So I want to wrap up today by encouraging you to read this passage again later and to listen carefully. What, what is Paul saying here to you? What is the message for us as a church? What does he want um, us to hear? And I trust that as you listen to these words, this incredibly um, um, beautiful passage of a man who's saying, and for this reason I am willing to suffer. And, and because it is for a reason that is beautiful and it is a reason that is sound in teaching, for that reason I can rejoice. So I want to do today the same thing as what we did last week. I want us to, to close by reading um, a few verses together. We don't have a closing song. And so again, I'm going to do my best to read this slowly and carefully but I would encourage you to, you know, to join in as we read this together. So can I ask you to stand as we read these um, following verses in closing? Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, and we'll read verse 28, and then we'll jump to Colossians chapter 2. We'll read verse 2 
all the way to floor, uh, verse 4. Let's read together. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches to this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. My goal is that we may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that we may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that we may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To this, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Let's pray. God, we stand together as your church, and we've rifled through these verses uh, super fast today. But Lord, I pray that even as we read this out loud, that each one of us today would be reminded again of what we are suffering for, and that we would be willing to suffer. We're not suffering in our own strength, or if we choose to suffer, it will not be in our own strength. We're not doing this for our own namesake, but we are doing this for you, Jesus, to live in obedience to you. You've called us to this. I pray, Lord, then also that we would be united, that while we may not always see eye to eye on all the topics, but that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would choose today to come under the lordship of Jesus and to work together to build one another up and to be obedient to your word. I thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.